Today we're going to continue a series of talks um, relating to issues connected to identity, sexuality and relationships. And today we're going to look at the topic of marriage. Now, uh, one of the best bits about being a pastor um, is every now and again um, getting to stand roughly in this position and watch a bride come down the aisle um, on her wedding day towards her adoring, albeit usually a little bit nervous and clammy looking groom, and getting to celebrate um, their, their marriage, getting to hold their hands together and declare those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. It's such a privilege. And um, just this summer, um, I, with, after 20 years of friendship and ups and downs, I got to do this for one of my closest mates. Um, I think there's a photo of it coming up on the screen. And um, it, was a, it was a slightly embarrassing um, day because I was easily the most emotional person there. And the part of the service that really choked me up, actually, was reading these words from the Church of England's marriage service which say marriage is a sign of unity and loyalty, which all should uphold and honour. It enriches society and strengthens community. No one should enter into it lightly or selfishly, but reverently and responsibly in the sight of Almighty God. I love that phrase. Marriage is a sign of unity and loyalty, which all should uphold and honour. If you can't see um, this picture that's coming up on the screen... It's the famous, quite dramatic photo of several soldiers clambering, clambering over the debris of a battle and urgently working together to raise a victory flag. Um, and in the picture, it happens to be American World War II soldiers, but the, the nation and the battle aren't the point that I'm highlighting here. The thing that struck me about this picture, um, and I think perhaps maybe this was a picture that God sort of put in my mind as I was preparing this, is that this is a picture of, of what we as a church are called to do with regard to marriage. Because like this flag, I believe that God has designed marriage to be a symbol. It's, it's designed to point towards and stand for something that's, that's bigger than itself. And we do this in the midst of a bit of a, a battlefield of a culture that has a conflicting view of marriage that doesn't necessarily centre around God's design, but a definition of marriage that can be changed as we deem fit, to, fit to, to suit ourselves. And so we are called, I believe, to work together to uphold God's design, to raise a flag that marriage is a sign of unity and loyalty, which all of us should uphold and honour. And so the talk today, it isn't just for married people. If you're, if you're not married, and as I started talking about marriage, you're like, oh, great, this is going to be boring. It's, it's for all of us. Um, because we're all part of this. And what I'm really trying to do, rather than give a few tips about marriage today, is look at this question. What is this flag, this symbol, that we are called together to raise? What is the message that God's design for marriage has for the world? And to begin to answer that question, we're going to have a look at a passage in the Bible. Um, it's from the letter of um, Ephesians. Um, years ago, a church leader called Paul wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus to give them some advice and here he's talking about um, relationships. And he says this in chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should sit, submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, 
love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Now, if you're familiar with that passage, Paul then, he then goes on um, to, to, to give some advice to people in various types of relationships, parent-child relationships, master and slave relationships. And apparently, he, he's working through a format that people would have recognized at the time as that of a typical Roman household code that prescribes you know, appropriate conduct. And so, culturally speaking, it was a familiar format that Paul was using, but it would have been an unfamiliar message because what he was saying was in all of these different relationships his advice is really summed up in that that first line that strap line at the top submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and this was a counter-cultural approach to relationships perhaps especially the relationship of marriage in the ancient world marriage was um, was less about romance marriages were generally arranged and they're about more practical things like offspring, uh, creating a support network, a means of carrying on the family name and protecting ownership of, of property. It was it's more like a, a contract that served the interests of the husband and the wife, albeit in a way that was heavily skewed towards the husband. In, in the ancient world, it was very patriarchal culture in that part of the world. Or, you know, the vast majority of the authority and the legal rights lay with the husband. And so, to that culture, Paul, Paul was sharing a disruptive view of marriage. He was saying, actually, it should be a relationship of equality and loving submission, mutual submission. And that's the first thing that I want to highlight as we look at this question, what is this flag? What is the message that, that God's design for marriage has to the world around us? It's this, we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I think this remains today a challenging way to approach relationships and marriage because I think culturally speaking marriage is often see about, seen as, as a way of meeting your needs of fulfilling that missing part of you finding a, a spouse in our culture is often seen as a way of improving your life finding happiness it starts on your wedding day this wonderful day that's all about you and thereafter it's about staying happy and inevitably that sort of mindset of marriage sees it as useful and healthy only if it continues to, to work for you. And if it doesn't, we live in a culture that doesn't see marriage as something that needs to remain permanent. If you're not happy, then your marriage is not fulfilling its primary purpose. So, you know, you get divorced. Now, I know that I'm really keen to be sensitive here. Um, I'm aware that there'll be a number of divorcees in the room, people who've got, um, you know, lots of different situations and backgrounds. And I'm in no way making a statement or a judgment about anybody's commitment to their marriage. 
Um, I'm aware that, you know, for some people, this whole topic of marriage is something that's just a really painful a topic to even begin to, to talk about because there's perhaps heartbreak of marital breakdown or bereavement. And it might be that, you've, you know, a marriage has not worked out despite you doing everything you could, despite tireless, selfless sacrifice. And I'm aware there'll also be a number of people in the room who are perhaps facing challenge in your marriage right now, and you're fighting for your marriage right now. And so if, if, if any of those, if this is a painful topic for you, the thing that I want you to hear most of all is that you're loved. Um, we want to be here walking with you in that, supporting you, loving you, because we all come to church needing one another's care and love in different ways. As God ministers to us, brings healing to us, and uses one another to do that. And so we, we want to support you. Um, and as a church, actually, I should say, to, as with all of these talks in this series, we've got some resources in the Connect area that might be helpful, different books. And there are a range of ways that we as a church want to seek to support people, from small groups to different courses and different resources. So ask at the Connect, or just, just ask somebody, reach out to somebody that you know or somebody that you trust here. And we want to do our best to help. But the point that I was making prior to that was that the standard that Paul is raising here, the thing that we are for and called to be for, is a picture of commitment and sacrifice in marriage that's, that's not self-serving, but other-serving. Instead of saying, husbands and wives, these are all of your rights, know your rights, he's saying, no, husbands and wives, lay down your rights. And this is a message that's consistent across the New Testament. In another letter that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians, he says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. And that would have been a radically um, counter-cultural statement to the patriarchal society at the time. But Paul's saying, look, if you, if, if you both look after your own interests, you'll end up just driving yourself apart. But if, if he looks out for her interests and she looks out for his interests, then you will, you will draw yourselves together. It reminds me of um, this image. Um, I'm sure we've all done this in, in, on rainy afternoons when we stack two playing cards together. Um, and, of course, if you've ever done this, it's only as one card leans into the other and vice versa that the structure is able to stand. If you try and balance the cards independently, of course, they'll fall down. And in the same way, it's only as a husband or, and a wife um, abandon their own self-interests and lean in to be there for the other, to support the other, can they fulfill each of their roles and build something of strength. As soon as one party sort of stands back and goes, actually, I need to think about me, then the whole thing loses its balance. Now, of course, that's quite a neat sort of uh, illustration, and it sounds great. But anybody who's been married for any length of time will know that it's difficult in practice, isn't it? I remember just after Abby and I got married, um, we were driving to the airport um, for our honeymoon the next day with our new luggage and our shiny wedding rings. And we, we were just being so nice to each other that day. I remember we just kept looking at each other and just smiling and not saying anything, but smiling. I don't know if anybody remembers that experience. And, of course, we discovered a couple of days later when we had our first married row, um, that the, the honeymoon was over, before the honeymoon was over. <laughs> and in the years since, what we've, I think we've come to realise is that the moment that sparks the majority of our conflict is when one of us finds ourselves asking questions like, but, but you're not thinking about me, but you're not listening 
to me. You're not seeing this from my point of view. It's as we become preoccupied with our own self-interests that we become incapable of looking out for the other party. And one phrase that we found useful in our marriage was something that we heard, I think, first at the pre-marriage course that we did here. By the way, there's one of those coming up after Christmas, um, and it's brilliant. But I think somebody said to us, remember, you're on the same side. And we've found that little phrase really helpful. And we've always given one another permission, even in the midst of a, of a conflict, um, to, to remind one another of those words. We're on the same side. And we promise to always take those words seriously. And it's helped us find our way out of countless arguments. Now, we're not perfect in any, by any means. Our marriage is very much a work in progress. Um, and what we found is that it's hard to do that. It's hard to lean into this posture that seeks first to serve the other, to think the best. So how do we do that? Well, going back to that picture with the playing cards, if you've ever done that, um, you'll, you'll perhaps remember that when you try to stack playing cards like that, it makes a difference what surface they're resting on. If you do it on a really flat, shiny surface, they just fall down, don't they? But if you've got something with a bit more grip to it, like a bit of carpet, you can, you can, you can stack them up pretty good. And I think in the same way, as we root our lives in relationship with Jesus, it's there that we find the stable footing, we find the traction, we find the grip that we need, the dependent foothold to lay down our life and lean into serving the other in response to the fact that Jesus did all of those things and does all of those things for us. And as we do that, what we find is our marriage begins to tell this beautiful story to the world. Um, just moving on in the passage, um, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Now, every now and again, this passage gets read at a wedding. Um, and um, it's, it feels that when those words are read, particularly the bit about wives submit to your husbands, it's as though the room sort of like clenches up a little bit. Um, and you can see, it's almost as if some of the women guests are thinking, you know, what? what? Uh, this is exactly the kind of outdated patriarchal nonsense that would stop me from ever coming to church. Um, and meanwhile, it's as though you can see the men thinking, you know, perhaps there is something in this church thing after all. <laughs> But joking aside, this passage is tricky to understand. And that word submit in particular, it's jarring, isn't it? Not least because whilst we live in a culture that has, it has moved on from the patriarchal days of the ancient world, we do still, unfortunately, live in an age of gender inequality. And so there's been a lot of, you know heartfelt debate about this passage and what it means and people view it different ways on one hand you've got people who see this passage as meaning that the husband has a, a leadership role and an authority over a wife in the marriage relationship and she should be submissive on the other hand you have people who who would read this and say oh no it's why husbands and wives are simply being asked to do th two, two things here that are actually completely identical they're just being described in different ways there's no difference between the two and then you have people who might interpret it somewhere in between. And uh, 
we don't have the time today um, to really do this question justice, and I don't really have the theological nous to do that. But I do think it's helpful to point out, when you look at this passage, that if we read that and we immediately focus on the question, so who's in charge? Then we've missed the whole point of it. Because remember, remember the strap line of the passage? Remember the thing at the start? Paul says, it's not about you. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about you both submitting to one another, serving God through serving one another. And so I believe it's a, it's a, a drastic misinterpretation and misuse of this passage to try and justify husbands playing some kind of dominant patriarchal role in the marriage and in the home. In fact, in verse 25, it explicitly instructs the husband to lay down his life for the spouse um, and to love her in the same way that Christ loved the church. And of course, how did, how did Jesus, how did Christ love the church? He served the church. He washed the feet of his followers. And ultimately, he laid down his life on a cross so that the church might flourish. And so there's nothing in that picture about dominance or only sacrifice and love and submission and laying down one's life. And those are things, when, when you think about it, that as followers of Jesus, we're called to do all those things towards one another in all of our relationships. Jesus calls us to, to submit to one another in love, and to lay down our lives for our friends, to love others as we love ourselves. And so it makes perfect sense that we would be and we would do all of those things towards our spouse, regardless of our gender. But I believe it's also, on the other hand, I think it is a mistake to suggest that the two roles here described for husbands and wives in Ephesians are completely identical, that there's literally no difference between, between what God's designed for, to be a husband and to be a wife. It suggests there's no difference between the two. I think that would be a mistake, and that would be to overlook this instruction here, that, that specifically in the context of a marriage relationship, the wife is called to, to, to embrace and lean into this posture of loving submission. And the husband is called to lean into and embrace this posture of sacrificial service to honour and uphold his wife. Now, what those, what those two things will emphasise and look like in practice, I think it will vary from marriage to marriage and probably culture to culture. And I think as with most things in the kingdom of God, it has far more to do with our motives, with the attitude of our hearts, than what we practically do. But I think it, does, it should look like something. Because otherwise, we overlook the reality that God's design for marriage is that it should be a relationship exclusively between a man and a woman, and that there's a difference between the two for a reason. And what is that reason? Well, I, personally, I think this bit's really cool. Um, we'll move on to a second question. What does God's design for marriage say to the church? And um, I'll just ask you to remember that. You remember that flag image that I, that I showed you at the start? And that question, what does that flag, what does it symbolize? Well, I believe that marriage is one of God's masterpieces of design because it's something that he's, he's given as a gift to humanity, to every culture around the globe. It's a means of, 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 of raising family and creating community. But specifically within the Christian community, marriage also has an additional purpose because we uphold a meaning and a purpose in marriage that in a mysterious way is designed 
to tell a story. Um, and it, I'll, I'll share another quote from the Church of England's marriage service to, to sort of spell this out a bit, which says, Marriage is a gift of God in creation through which husband and wife may know the grace of God. It's given that as a man and woman grow together in love and trust, they shall be united with one another in heart, body and mind as Christ is united with his bride, the church. See, marriage is, um, is a symbol, it's a signpost. The bride and the groom in a marriage represent Jesus and the church. Just as man and woman, male and female, are similar but different, so Jesus and his bride are similar but different. And, and the love in a marriage is designed to reflect the love between Jesus and the church. Now, I realize if you've not heard this analogy before, it's not the most immediately obvious analogy. Um, in fact, Paul himself acknowledges this in verse 32. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Essentially, what the, the husband's role in a marriage is to love his wife the way Christ loves the church. And the wife's role, likewise, is to love her husband the way the church loves Jesus. And in our own marriages, imperfect and flawed as they are, as we do this, they point towards a perfect relationship between Jesus and the church. And the idea is that as we do that, the world would look on and they would get a glimpse of this selfless, unfailing commitment and humble, costly service. And they would catch in that a glimpse of our love for God, God loves for us, and a glimpse of the, of the kingdom of God. Um, I've heard a number of people highlight that, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the, but the Bible begins and ends with a marriage service. In Genesis, at the start, you have all the creation story, and then as the culmination of that, you have Adam and Eve. Um, they're, they're, they're joining together. And then at the, at the end of the Bible story, in, in Revelation, we have the wedding feast of Christ and his bride, which is the church. And God's kingdom is once again restored to its fullest and heaven and earth are, are united. And so when we as God's people uphold and celebrate marriage, it's, um, it's in a way it's an expression of our desire to see that story fulfilled and to see God's kingdom come in fullness. And so, so there should be something distinctive in the way that we celebrate marriage. The way that we Christians like do marriage um, the way we should seek to not put the other down but raise the other up and help them flourish that, that tells a story that upholds this truth that God is worthy of our love and how much he loves us. And so when we gather together to celebrate weddings and we sing and we dance late into the night, we're not just having fun and celebrating that couple, although we are doing that, we're also celebrating this story, the gospel story of the love between Jesus and his church. In the same way, you know, when your friends, perhaps when your friends are going through a difficult time in their marriage and you're there to support them and you're there to uphold them, you're not just blessing them, you're helping to uphold and support and bless this story. In the same way, when a single person upholds and embraces this biblical view of marriage by by choosing to, to remain celibate, they're resisting the temptation to distort this picture or to, to pull this flag down in the way that our culture has done. And instead, they're helping to uphold and honour this story. And so each of us, in different ways, we have a role to play 
in telling this wonderful story to the world. And so I just want to finish by, by looking at what this might pan out for us on a personal level. What does God's design for marriage say to us? On the, on the 8th of April, 2005, I stood in this room uh, and, and, uh, and I was asked this question, John, will you take Abby to be your wife? Will you love her, comfort her, honour and protect her, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? Um, I said yes, and, and I still do. And, um, and if you're ever in this situation and having to share you know, your wedding anniversary, I suggest you don't do what I did in the last service and get that date wrong. Um, but we've corrected it for now. And, the, and Abby's not here for this service, but it's not because of that. It's just... You know. But anyway, to be married is to be faithful and loyal to your spouse, like it says in those words, in a way that forsakes all others. And I remember shortly after Abby and I got married, this was put to the test because one day I was making the bed and I, 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 I found this blanket underneath the pillow. And I hadn't realised that Abby was still attached to her childhood security blanket. And I wasn't expecting it certainly to be present in the marital bed. And uh, however, as the weeks went on and, and we had our first few newly read uh, rows, um, I started to notice that after conflict, um, she would often be curled up on the sofa with this, with this blanket. Um, and I began to feel jealous of, of the blanket. And it didn't, it didn't help that the blanket had a name, Guffy, and that sort of personified the whole thing. And in my mind, I began to imagine Guffy whispering in her ear, like, you know, like, I can't believe he said that to you. He doesn't deserve you. And um, eventually I tried to explain to Abby that I was, you know, I know this is silly, but I feel, I feel a bit jealous about, about the blanket. And of course she could have said to me, don't be so pathetic, and she would have been well within her rights to do that. But instead she, she thought about it, and then a few days later she just got rid of it. And um, I'm not saying you need to go home and throw away your childhood toys <laughs> or anything like that. But what I am saying is that when you get married... That relationship changes, and other relationships have to accommodate that. You, you, you love one another in a way that forsakes all others. In, in, in verse 31, Paul quotes Genesis, and he says, uh, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Once married, our ultimate loyalty after God, no longer belongs to our parents or our close friends or our kids or our security blanket. It belongs to our spouse. Because a husband and wife, they're no longer two. They've become one. They're an indivisible unit that must be protected, must be prioritised. And of course, this can be a really challenging season for best friend relationships or um, parents' relationships because those relationships have, have to adjust to this but it's healthy that they do. Those relationships remain vitally important, but they can no longer be a person's, a spouse's first place of loyalty and confidence. And so again, this is something that we all have to get involved in and participate in. Every single person has this, has, in this room has a, a role to play in supporting and upholding, protecting marriages in this way. It starts with, with spouses themselves. We have to remain faithful and loyal to one another in a way that, that, that's completely uncompromising. That means, obviously, sexual faithfulness, um, even flirting, even entertaining thoughts of sexual unfaithfulness 
it's a threat to that oneness. It's a threat to that relationship. But it also means honouring one another as spouses in the way we talk about our spouse uh, and, and whether they're in the room or not. And I know this is something where it may not, you know, it may not seem like a big deal, but I don't know if you've noticed in our culture, it's quite a common thing for husbands and wives to sort of joke about one another. And we kind of use a lot of these stereotypes. Like it's common, common for husbands to joke about how wives are nagging or controlling or talk about how we need a, a pass for a night out. And actually, what is the picture that we're communicating about our wives when we joke in that way? Or conversely, wives might joke about our husbands are, you know, daddy daycare, hopeless with the kids. Again, what are we, what are we communicating about, about them when we, when we joke that way? And I know they're kind of jokes that may not feel like that big of a deal. And if I'm honest, I know Abby and I have done a fair bit of that ourselves over the years. But it strikes me that in a subtle way, they, they have a way of dishonoring that marriage relationship. And so I, I think whether we're married or not, we have to be mindful in conversations with married friends to talk about, in a way, that, that honors spouses, whether they're in the room or not. Because to remind you of that picture, we have to work together to uphold, to honor, to, to protect this thing that we're called to stand for. And we, and we are attempting to do this in a bit of a, a battlefield of a culture. We experience a culture around us that doesn't share the same view of marriage, doesn't seek to protect it in the same way. And what's more, we live in a reality, a spiritual reality, where the devil, he doesn't want to see marriages thrive. He doesn't want that flag to be raised. He doesn't want this story to be told to the world. He doesn't want the church to be united with Jesus. And he delights in seeing God's design for marriage distorted and our own marriages destroyed. And I would say that in, in, in the last few years, even here, I think Abby and I, we would say that we've seen marriages um, come apart and fail that we would have considered invincible. Marriages of situations of like marital breakdown that have really stunned us um, into reflecting if it could happen to them, it could, it could happen to us. And I say that in all sincerity. And I think we've come to realise that it's only when you reach that point of acknowledging that, yeah, this could, we're not strong enough in ourselves to do this, that it could happen to us, that you can begin to assert that it won't. Because it's then that we realise that we need God's protection, we need his grace, if we're to continue to live out something as costly and sacrificial as God's design for marriage. Now, I realise in all of this, there'll be people here who are, who are struggling in different ways, perhaps struggling to find hope for a marriage that's in difficulty, it might be that the flag that you're trying to uphold is torn and tired. And uh, if that's you, if you're trying to find hope, the final thing that I want to encourage us to do is, is once again, just to look up to this symbol of what marriage is designed to symbolize. It's designed to symbolize the love story between Jesus and the church. Because I believe that's ultimately the, 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 the place that we can find hope for victory. You remember in the Bible story, when Jesus came to earth, the relationship, the marriage between God and his people, the relationship between God and his people at that point was broken beyond repair. But on the cross, Jesus' victorious grace and his love for us overcame. And that relationship was restored. Jesus won back his bride on the cross. And so in Christ's victory, there we can find hope for victory for our marriages. 
even if it feels like there is, hope is all but lost. I believe marriages can be fought for and victory is possible against all the odds. And it strikes me that in the very next chapter of Ephesians, Paul urges us to embrace this. He says, put on the armour of God. Um, That's something that we must do to defend both ourselves and defend marriages around us. We must come alongside one another to pray for protection of our marriages, and we'll have an opportunity to do that in just a moment as we step together into this battlefield so that we can together defend and uphold God's wonderful design. Why do we do this? We do it for the sake of those involved and those in their lives. But over that and more than that, I believe we do do this so that the world might see this picture of a relationship that's not centred around self, but centred around other and committed to sacrifice, love, loyalty and grace. And in that, they might see a little glimpse of the way that God feels about them. If you're able to, would you like to stand?